Well, Eddie's going to play a tune on the mouth organ now, and it's a tune that the Equals wrote themselves, called Sunny Boy, and the others are going to play as well. John's going to play his drums, and Lincoln and Pat are going to play their guitars, and Derv's going to play something quite different, called a maraca. You watch. Welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast, and my name's Jason Barnard, and that was The Equals and an excerpt of Sonny Boy, which is a really interesting clip all the way back from 1965, which was The Equals, I think The Equals' first appearance on British TV, and that's because I've got the huge honour to welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast, Dave Gordon, founding member of The Equals, songwriter and frontman. A huge welcome, Dave. Thank you, Jason. It's nice to speak to you again. It is, and uh, as we were discussing before we went on air, we're going to shine a light on a few parts of the catalogue and a few stories that we didn't cover last time. Maybe we can cover the early years of, of the Equals, and um, when did you get together with the other uh, band members? In uh, 1965, yeah. And um, the Sunny Boy track that you played there, it was... Um our first TV appearance anywhere, really. How did that happen? Because um, it's really early on in uh, the group's career. Well, it was play school, and uh, our manager at the time, Lee Shepard, he was an actor, so he knew people in TV, and somehow he managed to get us uh, on there to do play school for a week. We did five songs, and that was one one of our, our own composition. And so it was really early period for the, the group. We've only been going for a few months then, yeah. And what were you playing at the time? Oh, uh, we were trying to be a, a, a blues band and a sunny boy. <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, you know, I've got a thing about the blues. I mean, the blues, I love the blues. And there's no way we could be a blues band, really. We, we just didn't have the feel to be a blues band. You know, to be blues is, is very important. It's got, it's got its feel. It's all about feel. So uh, shortly after that, we gave up the blues idea, really, and decided that we it's best if we write our own things, because if we write our own songs, then you can't say they're bad, because it's our song. <laughs> you could say that we're a bad blues band, you know, because there were a lot of bad blues bands around at the time. Everybody was a blues band, you know, everybody was a, a harmonica player, you know. It was terrible, really, because when you when you hear the real stuff, and then you hear that, you realise it's nothing like the blues, really. 
we have Gene Latter next with um, one of your tracks, My Life Ain't Easy. And I understand he, he had a role in that period where you were trying to get a record contract? Yes, he was. Um, yes, he did. He lived next door to Eddie. We used to rehearse at John Old's home. But for some reason, I can't remember why we were rehearsing at Eddie's home um, that particular night. And Gene Latter lived next door. So we were probably annoying him, really, because he could probably hear us from his flat. And he came over and asked us the the stuff that we were playing, you know, whose material it was. So it it flowers, you know, we we wrote the songs. So he says, oh, great. He says, because I would like to record some of your material. I, you know, I know somebody who owns a record company and I could introduce you to him. And if you could um, go along, perform the song with me and um, he could hear the material and see if he likes it. Uh, so he took us down to President Records where we um, were performing the song. Ed Kasner, the boss of uh, President Records, turned around and said that, well, he, he would he wants me to be the lead singer. Not, uh, not Gene Latter, which, uh, you know, how do I feel about that? And it took me all of about, uh, two seconds to say yes. <laughs> and, uh, Gene was very annoyed. He was, he was very annoyed. But that's how it started. And the first record. So as we'll hear shortly, Gene decided to record his own version. Was that My Life Ain't Easy among that batch of songs that you, uh, played for Ed Kastner? Yeah, it was one of the songs, yeah. And uh, sometime later, Gene recorded it. But um, he was paid to give up his, uh, you know, any sort of rights that he thought that he had regarding the band. But he he was very annoyed. He was a nice nice guy. He was a very good singer, actually. He actually did some backing vocals on um, I Won't Be There. Oh. Yeah, you can actually hear his voice on, on there because... When we started to record, he came along to the session, you know, so he, he did some backing vocals on I Won't Be There. Because he'd had some singles out in, in yes, that period? He, yes, he had. Um, he told us that he had a single in the Belgian charts, a Rolling Stone song, um, Mother's Little Helper, I think it was. He sadly is no longer with us. He had um, some very serious illnesses and uh, he died some time ago. He was a nice guy. Life ain't easy Woman, you got to try to please me now You gotta do what I ask when I ask you to You gotta love me, baby, don't tease me I said my life ain't easy
It took um, a year or two for uh, the group to really start getting into charts in, in the UK and Give Love a Try was one of those. It might have been the first one that got into the top 75. So how were the first year or two? We were signed to President Records and also our material was published by Kasner Music, which was the major part. It was a far bigger company than President Records. You know, the, the publishing side of it. They were all owned by Eddie Kasner. And he had an office in Germany and in Hanover. So therefore, the records, well, he did a deal with um, Ariola Records in Germany. And they were putting out stuff. Uh, but the first one to actually hit the charts in Germany was I Won't Be There. Uh. And then they released um, Baby Come Back. Hold Me Closer was the A-side. And... Baby Comeback was the B-side. And the disc jockeys in Germany preferred Baby Comeback. So it became a big club hit, and then it hit the charts in Germany. And it took almost a year to make it to the charts in the UK. Uh, Give Love a Try, and then I Won't Be There was our, our first singles in the UK, which didn't really do any do anything. But then when Baby Comeback, we also, the Unequal Equals album, became a hit in uh, the UK in 1967, which was very unusual to have a top 10 album before you have a single. So all those tracks were on uh, the Unequal Equals album. The lyrics to Give Love a Try are, are very um, uh, hugely relevant today. Well, it even mentions the word Russia, Yeah. which at the time you didn't really say Russia. You would say the... Um, uh, what were they called at the time? USSR. Yeah, that's right. You know, so it's very relevant. Yeah, it's stayed relevant over the years, really, because there's always wars. You know, there's always people starving somewhere in the world. In that early period, were you touring a lot? Because obviously, a lot of groups gained followers in those days, way way before social media and TV yeah. was quite hard. Yeah, we did a lot of touring in um, in Germany. But we were, we were all, we were also more of a club group in, in the UK. We played a lot of clubs, you know, all over the country. So we had a reputation for our stage act as well as, um, our performances, our performances as, as well. And we also had a residency in a club in Liverpool, off Liverpool Street in London called the All Star Club where we supported a lot of um, American acts, that, artists that came over. You know, people like Wilson Pickett and um, Rufus Thomas and, and Burke. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. It was a very tough club as well, because it was mainly a black club, and the audience was really tough. I mean, if you didn't play your stuff, I mean, they would let you know. You know, I mean, I've seen groups being beaten up in there, you know, because they just didn't like how they were performing. So that's how we cut our teeth, really, you know, watching these guys as well. They're all very professionals. Somewhere in outer space A flying saucer fly Maybe in Africa 
about the equals is that the range of people and artists and styles that seemed to come across in some of the cover version yeah. we go into the mid 70s with brownsville station and i get so excited one of your songs and that's got quite a sort of harder more direct sound yeah sometimes it was a good thing i don't know if it was good or it was bad really because we seemed to cover everything really in they become back you can hear star you know some of the other songs you can hear calypso there's rock there's pop you can't pigeonhole our style really it covers a multitude of different genres which sometimes is good sometimes it's not so good but i mean i hear people saying that some of our stuff is punk you know really garage uh, oh, okay <laughs> i just go along with it whatever it is to me, it's just music. You know, I love music. I don't think you play an instrument. So how were you writing songs in that in that time? Like, I get so excited. It's all in my head. Yeah. I hear it in my head. I'm sitting here now and I could hear a tune. <laughs> if I wanted to write something, you know, it's all, it's all there. And I would just relate to the other members and uh, we'll go from there. I, w- I was too lazy to learn an instrument. That's why I decided that I wanted to be the vocalist and not, not the guitarist or drummer. 
and they were far better at it than me anyway. And Brownsville Station being an American group, and it seemed that the Equals didn't get the exposure over in the US that they deserved. I think you had, you might have had one or two minor hits, but you, you should have been much bigger over there. But the influence now is so strong. Yes, we didn't, unlike the other UK bands, we didn't tour America because uh, management felt that um, we would be in a multiracial band that we would have problems, especially down in the South. And there's no way that I was going to perform to an all-black or an all-white white audience. You know, and We had the same problems in Africa as well, in uh, South Africa, and what was then called Rhodesia. They refused this uh, work permit that wouldn't allow us to perform there. So we went to Zambia instead, which borders with both of those countries, and uh, fans came over from South Africa and from Rhodesia as well, and various other parts of Africa as well. But um, no, we didn't have the exposure in America as uh, a lot of the other UK bands have. But um, I'm reaping that reward now. Yeah. I love coming there now and perform. And I'm surprised as to how many people know the songs. I mean, people quoting songs to me, uh, songs to me that some of them I've even forgotten about. You know, hmm. they're very popular there now. <laughs> So 
you mentioned this earlier. We have Baby Come Back, and and this time a live version of uh, from Paris yeah. in '68, and. That's the other thing about the Equals. We talked about the fact that the Equals didn't get the success that they deserved in the States, but over on the continent, you were massive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at uh, times we had two or three numbers in the top 20 in Germany, in Holland, in Belgium, Spain, France. We were very popular in France. And it was a pleasure to play the Olympia because I used to see things, clips of, People like Little Richards playing there, you know, I think, oh, God, you know, one day I'd love to perform there. And uh, we got the opportunity, and it was great, yeah. I love performing live, you know. We were a great live band, a lot of movement, because it was like a competition. You couldn't stand there when the rest of them were moving. <laughs> you had to move as well. But it wasn't a uniform way of moving, you know, like bands like The Temptations and so on. You know, everybody just moved the way they felt, like moving. I mean, my brother had a, a, a way of jumping up while he's playing, which I thought was, you know, really crazy, but it looked good. But that's what, how he was feeling the music. And what was it like hitting number one? Um, it was crazy because our first manager, the guy who got us the um, play school gig, he used to say to us, don't say if, say when. So you had this thing, when I do this, when I hit the chart, when we become number one. It's a feeling that you just can't describe it. You know when you're wishing for something and you never think it would happen, but then it does happen. You know, how do you feel then? You're just totally elated, really. Didn't think it would happen at times, but because, you know, you have your ups and you have your downs. But then it, it, Baby Come Back in the UK went in the charts, got in the top 30, and then the following week it dropped out. And back it came in again, and then it just moved up and up and up, and then... It hit number one. Also, there was a lot of chart rigging going on in those days as well. And if you're with a small label like President, which was one of the few independent labels, it was very difficult to get in the in the charts because the big companies, you had to be distributed by the big companies. And if they've got one of their records that's heading for the charts and they're distributing yours as well, they're going to give preference to theirs, not to yours. So if you make the charts, if you make the, the top 10, as an independent company, then it really proves that that is genuine, which isn't necessarily genuine if it's from a big label. That could have been bought into the chart.
to give me a second chance. Baby, I love you so much. Do you think that the strength of the group was the fact that most of the band wrote their own material? Things are a lot written a lot now about Eddie's role, but actually it was uh, much broader in the songwriting department. Yeah, I mean, we all we all chipped in. I mean, even on the songs that has got totally as an Eddie Graff composition, I did a lot of contributing to... I contributed to every... Writing-wise, to every equal song that we recorded. And I did a lot of ad-libbing as well, which was not written. You know, nobody knew at the time that it was going to be there until I did it when when I was doing my vocals. I mean, take, for instance, a song like uh, Bobby Joe, Viva Bobby Joe. The song was just called Bobby Joe. And I said, no way, you know, it can't be just Bobby Joe. That, that, that doesn't sound right. I said, the song is about a guy who's riding a, a bicycle, the foot machine. I mean, people keep asking me, what's a foot machine? A foot machine is a bicycle, right? Mm. <laughs> It's a machine and it's, uh, you know, generated power by, by pedaling with your feet. But unlike now, anyway, you've got battery ones. <laughs> and I said, no, I said, he's a hero. So what do we say? Viva. What do, I said, what does the Spanish say about, you know, like a hero? They said, Viva. I said, that's it. That's the title for the song. Viva Bobby Joe. Because it was just Bobby Joe. Bobby Joe. But I said, no, 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 no. That's boring. That's, I said, put Viva. Viva. Put some hope into it. With the, word, with the word Viva. That's how the song came about. But I, on the writing thing, it's just got Eddie Grant. And on the B side of, of Viva, Bobby Joe, is um, I Can't Let You Go. And many of these songs, the B sides are, are as strong as the A side. They're, they're almost like double A sides. Yeah, I Can't Let You Go is my was influenced by Otis Redding, the big fan of Red, Redding, you know, and his style. You know, and I thought, you know, I can't let you go. No, no, no. A lot of these songs were written written at um, two, three o'clock in the morning. You know, when I couldn't sleep, so I get this idea. Well, what in my head? I've got to write this. I've got this down. I've got to get it recorded. And uh, if I couldn't complete it, I couldn't sleep until I completed it. Because unlike Lincoln already, who played the guitar, I didn't. So mine is just stuff that comes from my my head. I just hear it in my head and it's put down. But the style of I Can't Let You Go, it's like one of the stacks. It's like the stacks sort of stuff. Sam and Dave, Otis Redding, that sort of stuff. Must be a tribute to the song that Gino Washington recorded his own version of it. Great soul singer. Yeah, yeah. Did a look, quite a few gigs with Gino, actually. Shared a few stages with him. And he was huge. He was massive. He was pulling bigger crowds than the Stones or the Who at one time. Turn up at a gig and you hear Gino. Gino is the biggest puller here, you know. What are you going to do about it? You know? <laughs> but uh, it seems as if he was a fan. He never said so, but it seems as if he was of uh, our stuff. <laughs> 
moved in the, the same places as, as some of those great soul artists. I think I read the Equal supported Wilson Pickett. Yeah, we did. Twice, actually. But at the time, he had Midnight Hour in the charts. We thought, oh, wow, should we? Hmm. We performed it before him, yeah, and lived to tell <laughs> Yeah, because it was massive, you know, it was a massive hit. We thought, well, we there's a saxophone solo, and we haven't got a saxophone, so I had a kazoo, and I did the solo with my kazoo. Wow. <laughs> I think that took a lot of guts, actually. <laughs> but what, one of the things that annoy me, actually, reading about the equals, is Eddie keeps putting this thing out that he formed the, the equals. Eddie Grant did not form the equals. The idea of the equals came from John John Old and his mother. It was his idea. And he went to the same, John and Eddie and Pat Lloyd went to the same school. But they didn't know each other at school. And a friend, a mutual friend of John and Eddie introduced Eddie to John. A friend of mine introduced another guy called Eddie, a guy called Eddie Fazans, introduced myself and my brother to John. And we all met at the same time. And later on, months later, I introduced Pat Lloyd to the rest of them. And that's not the story that Eddie's telling. He said, oh, I, I formed it. He didn't form the equals. The idea was John Old's idea. And we met in John Old's home. That's where we bought the instruments to start the band. The other thing annoys me about the, the situation is he kept, at one time, he and his publicist were putting out that he was the lead singer. He's never been the lead singer. I think he sang lead on maybe two songs and Lincoln did on two as well. 99% of the lead, of, of the lead singing on the equals material is me. Not Eddie Grant, but I keep reading it, or I keep hearing it. I even wrote to him, I phoned him, I told him, Eddie, why do you keep doing this? Oh, it's not me, it's my people, my publicists. Greed. I mean, I even heard at one time that he told someone that he wrote all the songs. I mean, how stupid. You can see, see on the records, on the publishing, who wrote, who wrote what. Crazy. Looking at the writing, it's quite a, a few that, that you wrote with your brother, like I Ain't Got Nothing to Give You. So yeah. how did that partnership Very work? Well, because we were um, we were still living at home at the time, so it was easy you know, to write together. We were living at our parents' home, so um, he would have an idea and we'd go through it. I would have an idea, we'd go through, through with it. He would do some of the music, I would do some of the music. I did mainly the lyrics as well, but he would have an idea, like you would say, ain't got nothing to give you, and then I'd work from there on it and then write the rest of the lyrics for it.
BBC radio sessions uh, like the, the, we we love this. They have great studios, had all the latest equipment, and you were left alone to your own devices. There wasn't a producer in there saying, "You know, do it this way or do it that way." You know, it was just a band. Because you write the song, you know how your song wants to go. You know how it should go. You don't need somebody else to tell you how it should be going or they, how they think it should be going. Mind you, on the first album, we producer on that was Tony Clark. And he was producing the Muda Blues at the time. And he was also a Decca producer. So he wasn't really supposed to be producing it. So he was moonlighting. You know, hence, uh, he could put his name on. One of the ways that he got his payment was through one of the songs on the album was his song, which is, um, the guy you made her a star. And, uh, when I first heard it, I thought, I can't sing this. I, I don't know. It's not our, our star, but, um, to please him and he was a really nice person and he was a, he was an excellent producer he had some great ideas and I thought I've got to do it I've got to compliment this song and I think I did a good job on it it's a nice song as well Asphalt from my cigar Seeing the ice cubes Melting my drink And tried to think Yeah, yeah Jumping the car Turn my radio on I hear her singing Her latest song Once a week I see her on TV But that smile ain't made for me 
were making a pretty good sound. People were trying to get her to sign her name and make the big time. Her name and make the big time. So we did, and now she's a star. Now she owns a thousand new cars. But she don't get time to talk a lot to tell me how. Of material that people may not know that didn't necessarily come out under the equals name. So we've got Ansley Gordon, she gives me good loving. So who's Ansley Gordon? Ansley Gordon is Lincoln, that's his middle name. Ah, I was always wondering that. Wow, <laughs> yeah, that's, his, that's his middle name. So yeah, and also we did Rough Rider as well, yeah, because of the lyrics. President said, "No, no, no. You know, it's not the equals. You know, you, you can't put that out as the equals. You know, the the lyrics on that. You know, it's too, you know, too naughty." And uh, it was released, and then Prince Buster came along and did a cover version and tried to claim that he wrote it hmm. because at the time a lot of Jamaican artists, what they would do, they would take someone else's song, change a couple of the lyrics, and claim that they wrote it, but. Uh, our lawyer informed him at the time that, uh, no, 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 you didn't write this. This was written way before your recording. So um, he gave him and gave credit to us. And added covers as well. And it was just a little story that happened uh, while on tour. <laughs> How did all those different singles come about? Because then we've mentioned your brother's single, She Gives Me Good Loving, which is a song that you co-wrote. There was... Solo single of yours released. There was a duet with BB James. Yeah. Was it just that the fact that you were the group were just so prolific? Well, and I don't know. I don't know if that's a word I used to describe as. No, I mean BB James is. Uh, we did a show. I think it was in Birmingham, and she was uh, on the support act. And I thought, oh, she's a good singer. You know, and she asked me, "Would you write a song for me?" I said, "Yeah, sure." So I wrote. I wrote the song. And we did a duet on that, on a couple of them. There was also a, a female singer that um, Ed Kasner brought over from America, a woman called Felice Taylor, who was supposed to be the answer to Diana Ross. And he asked us to write a couple of songs for her, so we did. And um, so on, yeah. There's lots of gems there that are not necessarily that known because they came out on various different, under different labels. Yeah, that's true, yeah. You see, the, the thing, as you know, with the music business, a lot of it is trial and error. 
Sometimes you put something out there and it doesn't happen. Sometimes you put something out there, didn't think it would happen, and it happens. And a lot of it at the time was to do with airplay as well. I mean, the BBC had a lot of control as to what went in the charts and what didn't go in the charts. I mean, things like Top of the Pops, you had to be in the top 30 in order to get on Top of the Pops. But then the good thing, then you had the pirate radio stations, and they would just play what they want to play or what they were paid to play. And then they, it could, from there, it could go to the charts as well. next black skin blue eyed boys which seem to mark a brilliant message but also a shift in sound for the group you've got a bit more sort of funk and soul coming in there yeah yeah black skin ed kasner president records didn't want to know they said it was too controversial because of the lyrics we thought no we need to record this and so we went off for the first time we went off to a, another studio we said okay we'll pay for it we'll record it 
Well, you, you pay for it anyway. Even if it's president, you're still paid for it because it comes out of your royalties anyway. So off we went to another studio, IPC studio in Great Portland Street. Sadly's no longer there. Uh, it's opposite the BBC of all places. <laughs> and uh, BBC headquarters there. And um, we recorded it and took it back to president. And they said, OK. But they didn't really push it. And the thing that actually made it a top 10 was doing the Kenny Everett show. Uh, he was a great guy. You remember, do you remember, I don't know if you're old enough to remember Kenny Everett, the comedian. Yeah, yeah, the comedian. But he was an yeah. absolutely amazing DJ as well. Yeah, well, he had a TV show. So we did it on there and then, bam, it hit the charts. And then Top of the Pops, yeah, sort of reluctantly, uh, because of the lyrics again. You know. And then it was covered by a number of other artists and, what a surprising one is the Massey Shoals horn, you know, from down the south here in, in America. They did an um, instrumental version of it, which yeah, I quite like, actually. The specials, more recently? Yes. Uh, I don't think they quite understood the song. I mean, there's a sort of wailing guitar solo in it, which I thought, oh, what, what has that got to do with it? <laughs> you know, but, you know, we all hear things differently, so what can I say? Do you remember um, recording the video for, for that? Cause I'm trying to work out where, where that was. Was it somewhere yeah. in Oxford? Or? Yeah, it was Oxford, Oxford University, right. yeah. yeah we, we got permission to record there, to do it there. Uh, and stand-up uh, stand as well. You know, be counted as well. We did there as well. A place of learning. <laughs> okay, I'm loosening up now, children. Wow. Boys, they ain't gonna fight no 
Stand Up and Be Counted again marks that shift into the 70s where you've got a bit more of a, a funkier sound but tied to a really important message. Yeah, but um, sadly we'd left um, President then because we had a falling out with them. And we went over to, um, to CBS who um, paid us a lot of money but um, hadn't got a clue what to do with us. So that was a big mistake. Uh, we were sued at the, as well by President at the time. And part of the settlement was to do the two rock and roll albums, which um, most of the songs on there, probably all of the songs there, were published by Kasdan Music, by Ed Kasdan. The ones we wrote and also the covers that we did, which um, was under duress. But looking back at it, I, I think we did a fairly good job in the cover versions. But I'm, I, I don't particularly like doing covers, really. You know, I prefer to do our own stuff. But uh, that was part of the court settlement that we had to do through those songs. And around that CBS time, was that the period where Eddie was ill? No, no, no. Eddie was ill in, um, well, he, he was ill for a long time. Really. He was ill from the car accident in 69 where we wrote up the Bentley on the autobahn going to um, do beat club with, with Bobby Joe. He was seriously injured then. And then they discovered that he had a heart problem as well. So he was ill for quite some time. But C- CBS, they booked us studio times in one of the best studios in London, and the producer didn't turn up. So we ended up producing it ourselves anyway. But uh, then when it's, it's okay if you've got the material, but then it's it's got to be publicized. It's got to be pushed. It's got to be promoted. And they didn't do any of any of that. It was a very short um, short time with them because it just, they just weren't interested. As, as a matter of fact, the managing director at the time was American. He'd just come over from America. And his biggest concern was getting um, a dishwasher in, the, in in his apartment. Because being in backwards England, we didn't have dishwashers then, or didn't have many. And he was really upset that his wife was upset, and that was his biggest concern. <laughs> Not promoting material. Dishwasher. These are the things that you don't know that goes on in the background, you know, as to why things make it or they don't make it. You know, as you know, because you've spoken to so many people and I'm I'm, so, I'm sure so many artists you've spoken to, I'm sure they've all come up with similar stories about similar situations. Because you see, at the time as well, Jason, what you've got to pop music or rock music or whatever you called it at the time was not considered to be lasting, wasn't considered to be important. So it was just a fad that would just fade away. So it wasn't taken seriously by the people who should take, who should have taken it seriously. I'm surprised at how it lasted, really, because it, the promotion just wasn't there. I mean, everybody's running around now saying, yeah, it's great, you know, rock and roll, we never die, and blah, blah, blah. But at the time, they weren't saying it. It was a struggle to get a record out. Make your feeling show. 
single diversion by the equals was from what i can see was released in 73 but you'd signed to cbs about a year earlier so when was diversion recorded their version was recorded around about 71 but um after we left president records then they start putting out a lot of stuff that they had in the can that they hadn't released and they also started release a number of uh, album tracks and singles as well was that a bit of a mixed thing that they were kind of releasing things that were unauthorized well it's not a matter of authorized they had they owned it so it was up to them to re- release it or not but the problem was they were releasing stuff but we weren't no lot we were no longer with them and so therefore they weren't being promoted and you'll find a lot of artists had that problem as well as when you leave then there was a whole barrage of stuff that's been released that was there or they just take stuff off albums and they put them out as singles Plus, also, President Records, our records were released. We were a truly international band. We were released all over the world. China, Japan, India, you name it. Our stuff was released all over the place. But we never promoted. We never went to some of, a lot of those places to promote them, as you do now when you, know, when you have a single out. Those President releases went on through to, I don't know, was it 1977 or something? Yeah. So they kept yes, on... They just because they had the rights to them. You know, there's nothing you could do about it. At the same time, it did unearth some great tracks like Diversion, which now for many fans is a, a key track. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. There's there's also a cover version of it by an American artist that uh, I can't remember his name. It's really awful. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what he was listening to it when he decided to record that. But it certainly wasn't our version. But... Uh, <laughs> No, there's some, there's a few cover versions out there that make me want to cry when I hear them, actually. But <laughs> <laughs> what, can, what can you do? I mean, you can't, it's not against the law, sadly. <laughs> One, two, three, four. Diversion. I'm back, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back. 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 I'm back.
CBS, you were more independent, and there was a a shift in sound to a a more funkier feel. We've got Mystic Sister. How was that process in terms of going more independent and and shifting the sound? Because it was quite different to, say, a decade earlier. Well, as you know, things tend to progress, and uh, Mystic Sister was an album, and also Bornia, and they were all both recorded at the same time, actually even though the style sort of varies. And that was for a project called Phonogram. But there again, we ran into the same problem. They had no idea. And at the time, they were promoting a band called the Oaya Players, which was supposed to be the next big thing. And that's where all their interests were. It wasn't in uh, the two albums that we produced for them. It's just by word of mouth, really, that uh, things like Funky Like a Train became very popular in the discos and uh, so on. But they weren't promoted at all by the record companies. It doesn't matter who you are, from the Beatles down Stones River. The stuff has got to be promoted. If it's not promoted, people can't hear it. People don't hear it. People don't know. Sometimes you're lucky and it gets out there by word of mouth. But a lot of times it doesn't. So therefore it just goes into, just disappears, just nothing happens. But um, a lot of our material, is, it's got to do with feel. A lot of the stuff, if it's funky, if it's what you think is funky, then that's how we feel about the music. And as you become more confident in the way you play and the way you perform, I suppose it's funkier and funkier, really. For those two albums, uh, Mystic Sister and Borneo, Eddie's seems to be predominantly credited in the songwriting department. Was was he more involved in, in, in that period? Yeah, that, that was basically his, his idea. He wanted to do those... He wrote those songs. He wanted to produce them. And at the time, he had we had this, a studio. It was basically myself and Eddie and a couple of friends, really. I mean, it's got credited as the equals, but it wasn't really. I mean, Lincoln didn't perform in there. Pat didn't perform in there. John didn't perform and it was just basically myself and Eddie and a couple of other friends really. I didn't know that. Yeah. I did the vocals and Eddie played 
some of the instruments. The bass player was a friend of ours. The drummer was also a friend of ours as well. It was, so, I mean, it's credited as the equals, but it's not really the equals. But there again, you, you could call myself an Eddie the Equals. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but uh, technically, no, Lincoln, Pat and John didn't perform in, on that, those albums at all. Oh, man! 
a track that you uh, mentioned earlier Derv and it's Rough Rider and we've got the Beats version from uh, 1980 from their I think what is their debut album and we were talking about the fact that the Equals couldn't be pigeonholed and Rough Rider came out as the 4Gs and you and the group were influential in that early sort of reggae and ska sound. Yeah, yeah. Also the ska influence came from go back to the All Star Club because it was a, a club that the music that were played that was played there was ska, blue beat, and soul. So that's where the influence came from. I'd heard of Prince Buster at the time, and I'd met uh, Desmond Decker because his uh, brother George Decker I knew from we were little kids in um, in Jamaica. I knew George from then. But my father had a big scar collection because he had a friend who was a, a sailor. And when he came up from Jamaica to England, once every couple of months, he would bring all the latest um, scar, blue beat stuff as well. And my father was also a big jazz fan as well. So a lot of the influence from, from me for music goes back to my parents as well. My mother was a big Jim Reeves fan. Every Sunday we had to have Jim Reeves records because she thought they were sort of religious or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, and also growing up, at one stage, we had an option. Do you want a television or do you want a radio, what was called a radiogram, right? And actually my brother, Lincoln and I put our hands up. There were three of us, my brother, Lincoln and I and our sister. So we outvoted our sister who wanted a television. We wanted a radiogram because we had all these, my dad all these these records and uh, we've got a television later but it, music was more important so as far as I can remember going back to a very 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 young age I've always been obsessed with music and I've always sung to myself or in the bathroom or wherever so music was it's basically my life really by the early 80s things seemed to come full circle in with, with the two-tone sound and, and you can see the the Equals being one of the, the influence in, in that. Was the early 80s a period where the, the Equals just wasn't wasn't around? No, we weren't. We'd, we'd broken up then. We weren't recording. It's not until the about 83, 84. Yeah, about 84, then I had an offer to go on tour in, in Europe. And I started touring myself and uh, Pat Lloyd and Lincoln. We brought in a couple of other musicians. We did very little recording.
final track is um, The Clash's version of Police on My Back which again shows the range of groups that were influenced by the equals and the message in your music is so important which has come across today, Give Love a Try Black Skin, Blue Eyed Boys That's right, I mean uh, a number of times I was um, Police on My Back was written in uh, 67 and uh, how that came about was um, we were rehearsing at the All-Star Club where we had the residency. The club is in the 
guy called Artillery Passage. I don't know if it's still there, but it's very close to Liverpool Street's uh, railway station. And while we were racing, um, I decided to go over to Liverpool Street railway station to get some drinks, some Coca or Coca-Cola, and uh, bring back while the guys were still in the in the club. And um, I went to the station, and two very big guys, men, came up and lifted me up by both arms, and they said that there were police. Uh, there were the police, plainclothes police. And uh, they took me across the road to Liverpool Street Police Station. And uh, they said that I'm under arrest. They put me in a cell. And I was there for about half an hour, four or five minutes. And eventually somebody, one of the officers came to the cell. And he said, we're, we're going to charge you. I said, well, what, what are you charging me with? He said, murder. I said, murder? <laughs> are you serious? And he says, yes, so we're charging you for murder. We believe that you're so-and-so uh, who murdered um, his girlfriend. And uh, my knees went weak. I said, no, no, no. I said, you've got the wrong person. It's definitely not, not me. I, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't even got a girlfriend. So I said, listen, this is who I am. I'm in a group, and we're rehearsing in the All-Star Club in Artillery Passage. I said, the rest of the guys are there. I said, please go and speak to them, and they will tell you who I am and where I am from. And strangely enough, they did. And they brought the guys back to the police station. They thought it was funny. They were laughing. <laughs> I mean, it was serious stuff. I was released. And we decided this is real. I mean, the police, you know, they really do go out arresting people that are not guilty of crime. And from there, um, you know, the, the song police on my back came from there. This is why whenever I, you know, I mention it, I always say to me, if you feel it, then you know it. Mm. And I felt it. And it wasn't the first time. I, as a school kid as well, I was re- arrested wrong, wrongfully as well. And during a, a period of driving my own cars, expensive cars, I was often stopped by the police because I'm a black person driving an expensive car and I shouldn't be. There weren't many black men at 21 driving a, a Bentley, you know, or an Aston Martin. <laughs> you know, so I was always pulled over and sarcastically at time it would be, oh, is it your dad's car? You know, and remarks like that, you know, it couldn't be me, you know. And then when they, when you say, oh, you know, oh, it's one of the equals. Oh, oh okay. On your way. Yeah. And then looking forward, Dave, uh, trying to make plans to get out there and do some more live shows? Yeah, most definitely. Been off too long. Got to get back out there. It's been worked on at the moment as well, you know. These things are not done by me. I just, I'm just told, uh, you know, this is blah, blah, blah. You know, what do you think? Which is great, you know, because it's not my, everyone is in touch to do their part of the business. My part is to turn up, get on stage and do a performance. But I can't wait to get back out there. But I've got to be certain that this, yeah. that I'm going to be safe. Well, hopefully I can see you uh, again in London at, at some point in, in the next year or so. So fingers crossed. Well, I would love to. I would love to. And uh, I've always enjoyed your association, Jason. I think you're a very nice person. Actually, you're quite unique. You're actually genuine. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know too many of those. <laughs> 
you love actually love doing what you do. It's not about money. It's, it's something that you love doing. Well, thank you so so much for for everything, Dave. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate it. Speak soon, okay? All right. Take care then. Okay. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much 
plus any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.